Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ernest Anfin. My therapist chuckled, scribbling on her notepad. Oh, the blood, my God, the blood. She said, I get nauseous just listening to you. She shook her head. Blood? I I haven't even told you a bloody story yet. That and more, but before that, the next Risk livestream show is on Friday, February 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern, and we're doing it in conjunction with one of our very favorite storytelling organizations, First Person Arts in Philly. So tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. I can't wait for this cast of storytellers. Janice Matias, Ray Christian, Gabriel Pages, and Dave Emanuel. Again, that's at risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets. February 19th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is The Heights Murders Theme by our own audio editor, John LaSala. Behind me now, I'll talk more about this music later in the episode. We're calling this week's episode Ricochet, things that came back to haunt people in certain ways. Now, the final story on this week's episode requires a content warning, so I will return and comment more on that later in the episode as well. But before that, Shelby Wilson shared a remarkable story at a recent Risk live stream. And before Shelby, we're going to hear a story. You know, we've been calling for those anecdotes for you guys to send in. And Jessica Thompson was right on top of that. You can find her at jessica.m.thompson on Instagram. Here she is now. 
with a story we call Left Holding the Bag. Many moons ago, I was filming with a medical nonprofit and they were providing vision care in a really, really remote part of Ecuador. And they had given me this translator. His name was Daniel. He was this young, I think 15 or 16 year old local boy. And he had, he was the sweetest kid. He had these big brown puppy dog eyes and he was so kind and patient with me. My Spanish was atrocious. And on the last night of the week long clinic, I was running really late and I had a plane to catch and I had to get to the airport. So I I had a shower, I threw all my clothes into my backpack and I ran out of the hotel and that's when I found Danielle, my translator, patiently waiting for me in the lobby of the hotel and he had this little red gift bag in his hands. And I was like, okay, I have no time for this, you know, I really need to go. So I gave Danielle a quick hug, I said thank you and I shoved the gift bag into my backpack, closed it and got into the taxi. I went to the airport and I checked in my luggage and I lined up at the security line and this um, guy in like plain clothes, like a plain close police officer he came up to me and he asked me to follow him and I didn't think anything of it I just thought it was I had been randomly selected for extra security questions or whatever and then he led me out onto the tarmac you know is a pretty small airport and he took me to like the bowels of the airport into the hangar where everyone is wearing those big earmuffs and sorting out luggage and I could see my backpack was already there and there was two officers standing next to it it was on like this stainless steel mortician's table and I was like what is going on they had gloves on and then they started the questions is this your bag yes did you pack it yourself yes Have you had any romantic relationships while in Ecuador? Um, no. Have you received any gifts? And that is when all the blood drained out of my entire body. I was in shock. I couldn't believe what was happening. The officers proceeded to open my backpack and there right on top was the small red gift bag that Danielle had given me. I could see what was about to happen. And I just said to them, like, throw it away. I haven't opened it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on. Please just throw it away. And they looked at me solemnly and said, we can't do that. They then opened the gift bag and my stomach was churning. I was just waiting for whatever was in there, a brick of heroin. I don't know. And when they opened the bag, hundreds of little red confetti pieces in the shape of love hearts flew out and they all looked at me with this big really look and I said I swear I, I don't I did not have a relation he's 16 this boy I don't know he has a crush I did I swear and so here I'm thinking oh god that if they don't get me for drugs they'll get me for statutory rape or something anyway the officer then pulled out of the bag this white plush teddy bear and it was holding a love heart I was just dumbfounded. Anyway, they start pushing on the teddy bear and all I can imagine is my future spent in an Ecuadorian prison because of Danielle. You know, this gorgeous young boy, Danielle, with the puppy dog eyes. He was a drug dealer. He was a cartel member and that means that I am a drug mule and 
you know, banged up abroad. That's how this happens. That's how this happens. And I'm going to be on that show. I could just see it. I'm sweating bullets and the officers take scissors to the bear and they cut it open and then they start to pull the stuffing out and then um, they pull out more stuffing and then they pull out more stuffing. There was nothing in there. The teddy bear was just lying there deflated and they told me I was free to go. And that's the day I learned that sometimes things are exactly what they appear to be including a kind-hearted teenage boy with puppy dog eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, I am really pleased to present to you Shelby Wilson. So Chad and I got married on August 10th, 2018. The day was basically perfect. We had a small ceremony at his grandma's house where we just had close friends and family. Then we went and took pictures at a park on the water and it was beautiful. And all of these little grasshoppers crawled up in the layers of my skirt and all of the wedding party had to help me pull them out just one by one. Um, so that by the time we made it to the old jazz club where we were having our reception, we were ready to just dance the night away. I woke up the next morning a little hungover, um, but I reflected back on the day and I just, I couldn't really think of anything that I would have changed. Chad woke up too, also a little hungover, but with the addition of going through heroin withdrawals. He was already fatigued and achy and shaking and nauseous and uh, just generally very miserable. So Together, we packed up our Airbnb, headed back to the venue to pick up some decorations and the tux jacket that Chad had left there. And then we headed straight to the bank so that we could cash all of the checks that we had received as gifts um, and withdraw money so that we could purchase enough heroin to get us through our honeymoon. So we take off to his dealer's house. We're sitting outside waiting for him to bring the dope out. It all felt a little surreal. You know, here I am sitting married, not even 24 hours. And, uh, this is, this is the first thing that we do as a, as a married couple. And I should say, I, I was aware to some extent of Chad's use. It was probably about a year into dating that he told me he had gone on this trip. Um, he didn't take any heroin with him and he started going through withdrawals and he was just so embarrassed. He didn't realize that he had become dependent on it. And it seemed like a thing in the past. He had gone through withdrawals. He was clean now. He was embarrassed. It wasn't going to happen again. And that continued to be a trend where stuff would go on. He would be broke. He would just kind of drop off the face of the planet for a few days. And I wouldn't hear from him. And he always had an excuse. Uh, He always had a reason. And for a while, I, I bought into it. But then every once in a while, it would come out that, okay, yes, he had been using. Yes, he was going through withdrawals, whatever it might be. But again, it was very private for him. This was something he did on his own. I didn't use. I've never been a user. So it just wasn't really in my face that much. Anyway, sitting in the car, just got married, got a stack of cash in hand, got enough heroin to make it through the next week. 
So we take off on our honeymoon and we get to our first stop. We are climbing the stairs to our tree house. It's beautiful. We're checking out the sites. And the first thing Chad asked me is if I can hold on to his dope for him and kind of ration it out. And I am on board with this. Great. You know, we'll, we'll make sure that we can make it through this trip. Um, don't have to worry about withdrawals. We'll be good. So we go to the next stop and the stop after that. And eventually I don't have the heroin on me anymore. Um, Maybe I unintentionally forgot to ask for it. Maybe Chad intentionally didn't give it to me, but for whatever reason, I didn't have it anymore. So by the time we made it to our second to last stop, Chad informed me that he was out of dope and he was going to go through withdrawals any minute now. We pulled into Nashville and decided that really our only option to get through this was to make sure that we could find some dope. So Chad took off one way, I took off the other way, and he was going to find some heroin on the streets of Nashville. So I'm walking, again, another kind of surreal moment where it's like, oh, I'm on my honeymoon, I've been married for a week, not even, and this is what's happening. Um, so half an hour passed, uh, I haven't heard from Chad, I give him a call, he doesn't answer, but Chad never answers his phone, so whatever. Another 10, 15 minutes, I call again, no answer. I'm calling and texting. It gets to be over an hour, so I'm just calling and calling and calling, and he's not answering, and I am spiraling out of control because I have my phone, I have my wallet, so that's great, but I'm in the city that I don't know. I don't have keys to a car. I'm going to have to go to the police and report my new husband missing uh, because he's probably been kidnapped or murdered, and then i got to tell his mom and my parents, who know nothing about any of this, but then he does pick up and he's found someone who's going to get us the hookup. So we pick up the stranger in our car and we head out to the outskirts of Nashville and he goes into his friend's house, comes back out and he's got a little plastic baggie. And as kind of horrifying as all of this has been, I am relieved because at least now Chad's not going to go through withdrawals. We can make it through our honeymoon, get home and then worry about it then. The problem is that that little baggie did not have heroin, it had crack. Apparently there had been some sort of misunderstanding about what Chad was looking for. Uh, so that was not what we needed, um, but you know, no returns. Um, and we were out of cash, so we were kind of stuck. All that was left to do was to go to our last stop on our trip. So Chad's starting to go through these withdrawals, right? Like he he's nauseous, puking, achy, all of that. So he's in the back, I'm driving, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and for the first time ever, Chad uses in front of me. It's not heroin, but he decides out of desperation, he's just going to snort this crack. Maybe it will stave off the withdrawals for a little bit. And for all the time that we had been together, he had just been so good about hiding it. He had, it was never right in front of my face. So I, again, look in that rear view mirror, see him open up the little baggie, pours out the crack on a brochure for one of the stops along our trip, cuts it up and snorts it. And of course that did not do what he needed. So by the time we made it to our last stop uh, at Mammoth Cave, he was in full blown withdrawals and I had never seen him this sick. Um, for the next 12 or so hours, he just spent the time alternating between the bed and then going to the shower and just like running hot water all over his body to try to soothe his aching muscles. 
And I just sat down on the couch and turned on the TV and just completely shut down. This was not what I had planned for my honeymoon. But morning eventually came and I get up, going to get ready for the day because what else are you going to do? And I wake up to a uh, just a trail of shit all over the carpet. Apparently at some point in the night, Chad had woken up, went from the bedroom to the bathroom and just shit himself and had no clue. So I have to clean it up, obviously. And I don't think I have ever been as angry and hurt and sad as I was scrubbing the shit out of the carpet of our Airbnb that is there because of my new husband going through withdrawals from heroin again on our honeymoon. But we were at Mammoth Cave and I was determined to go with her without him. And at this point, the only option was to go without him. So that's what I did. Drove to Mammoth Cave, booked my tour, left Chad in the car and headed off on this tour. And here I am just like in this dark, damp, cold cave, surrounded by strangers, feeling completely alone. No cell service, of course, and all I can picture is coming back to the car and finding Chad dead in the back seat, just like choked on his own vomit. Came back to the car. He's not dead. He was very much alive, actually doing a little bit better, and it was time to go home. That was the end of our honeymoon. So again, he's in the back seat. I'm driving, and I don't know. It was sunny out. I was feeling almost hopeful, like, okay, we're in this together now we're married, we're going to be living together, I can control this, he's going to get clean, like, I'm strong, I got this. And we talked about it too, like in between pulling over so he could puke out the side of the car, we came up with a plan. Chad was just going to go through withdrawals, he was going to quit his job, and that would be it. Like, this is our new start, we're just going to do it, quit cold turkey. And then when we got home, I don't know, I just had this sense that something was going on. So I walked up to our front door and for whatever reason decided to lift up the little piece of carpet um, at our front door and found a little piece of folded up newspaper or receipt or something. And I realized that Chad had lied to me. He had already contacted his dealer and had it dropped off at the house. And, you know, he had his reasons. Um, He needed to be functioning so that he could go into work and, like, actually quit his job and be on good terms and whatever. But this would be the last time he used. And I believed him. And that wouldn't be the last time that he lied to me. That wouldn't be the last time I believed the lies. And that just kind of, again, continued for the next year. Lies after lies after lies, which turned into stealing, which turned into like making me feel like I was the crazy one and I just felt so lonely. But then I got to the point where I realized I have tried everything. I have tried controlling this. I have tried leaving it up to him. I've tried getting his family involved. Like, I don't know what else to do. He will not get clean or stay clean and he is going down and I'm not going to go with him. So about a year later, I woke up again a little hungover, but Chad and I like rolled over, looked at each other, and he asked what I was doing that day. And I took a deep breath and said, I'm moving out. And I did. I want to say that Chad is not a bad person. He's actually a very good person. 
but he made some bad decisions that made him not a good person for me to be with. And I just realized that the only way for me to love him and to love myself was to leave. Thank you. W. Wilson, everybody. Thank you so much. is risk this is the cocteau twins behind me now and we just heard from shelby wilson who you can find on instagram at shelby alexandria before that a little snippet from the song crush by jennifer page and before that the story by jessica thompson was edited by jeff barr This week's Patreon bonus will be a check-in between me and Don Joel Fraser, who's told several classic stories on risk and who teaches storytelling at thestorystudio.org. There's lots of bonus content at patreon.com slash risk, and your donations there help us pay a staff of almost 20 people. Not all full-time, but it's a lot, and they work their butts off to keep this show happening. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. What you're hearing behind me now is music from The Heights Murders, a movie where all the music was composed by our own audio editor, John LaSala. The Heights Murders is a kooky, choose-your-own-adventure murder mystery movie that you can find. It's running until February 14th. You can get 24-hour access tickets for $10 at Heights Players. Dot org and the official soundtrack is at johnlasala.bandcamp.com so super fun stuff check it out now our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Ernest Anfin who first shared a story on the show a classic called Marilyn that you can find on the best of risk number 17 Now, this story will be challenging for some people to hear. There are things that happen to animals in the story that are bound to be upsetting to some folks. The story is set on a farm where all kinds of things happen to animals. So I wanted to give a heads up about that before we dive in here. 
This is a radio-style story edited by John LaSala. You can find Ernest Anfin on Facebook, and here he is now, Ernest Anfin, with a story we call The All-American. Today, if you were to see me walking down the street, you'd see an unremarkable, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, middle-aged man. But in my youth, in my youth, I embodied the golden boy, the all-American boy, the boy who could do no wrong. And I did all I could to maintain that image, to maintain that facade of perfection and correctness and, and privilege. But so often it, it was just that. It was just a facade. I, I was no all-American boy. I knew that I had a capacity to detach, to engage in violence. And so often it felt like this corruption was just beneath the surface, waiting to explode. And there were times when it did explode, and, and people were frightened, and people were hurt, and relationships were destroyed. After my second divorce, I, I just couldn't pretend any longer. I couldn't pretend to be him, to be the golden boy. It just wasn't me. I, I had to understand this corruption. And so I, I went to therapy, and like all therapy, it began with that familiar question. So, tell me, what was your childhood like? Well, I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. It was really idyllic. As a kid, we had tree houses and apple fights, and we ran all over the country, and we camped out under the stars. We had every pet imaginable, dogs and rabbits and horses and hamsters. I mean, we had this giant pet cemetery, and, and whenever a pet died, we'd have a funeral, and, and we'd take a shoebox and make a casket out of it. We, we decorated it with glitter and beads and feathers and ribbons, and, and we'd make floral arrangements and headstones. I mean, everything. And we carried the casket through the grove singing hymns, and my brother would eulogize whatever we were burying. And we'd cry and we'd pray. I mean, we really did it up. It, it was quite a production. Cats, my therapist asked. She liked cats. D did you have any cats? No, no, no cats. I, I mean, we had cats, just not as pets. My dad hated cats. The only cats we had were wild cats that ran around the farmyard. He especially hated house cats, jumping on the counters and tables, the whole litter box thing, getting too close to food. I mean, ugh, it's gross. I mean, we all know it's gross, honestly. Yeah, there's a story. We all remember this story. We all remember this night. I was in elementary school, that age range. It was the fall. I wasn't very old. Dad had been combining corn all day, and he would combine as late as he possibly could into the night. So we were eating late, really, really late. And my mom had been teaching all day, my brother had been at school all day, and then he hauled corn all night after school. We were a bunch of tired, really, really hungry people. So we sat down at the dinner table. It was the stereotypical 1970s kitchen with the harvest gold appliances, the dark woodwork, the crazy wallpaper. And my mom, she was the queen of casseroles. She prepared a casserole of some sort. Tuna fish and noodle, macaroni and cheese, something like that. And we just finished praying when all hell breaks loose. This mangy old scrawny cat comes flying out of the cupboard behind my sisters. The cat just launches itself right over the table and lands smack dab in the middle of my mom's casserole. All of us kids and my mom, we shriek and scream because we're so surprised by this cat. And the cat is slip sliding around the casserole dish. Food is flying all over the place. But before it could jump out of the casserole, 
My dad grabs it by the tail. You damn cat. He swipes it off the table, marches to the porch, and along the way he grabbed a shotgun. And then he went to the front steps of our house and he threw the cat up in the air. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that cat was dead before it hit the ground. My dad did not like cats in the house, not around food, not after a long day of backbreaking work. Yeah, that was a night we remember. That didn't traumatize you, my therapist inquired, as a little boy? No, no. I I don't really remember being traumatized. I, I thought the cat deserved it. That cat was always sneaking around trying to get into the house. Everybody in the family had kicked that cat out of the house, you know, a hundred times. I mean, sure, it was a cat, but it wasn't stupid. It knew better. Yeah, I I remember I was a little pissed because now what the hell are we going to eat? The casserole was ruined. I remember the gunpowder burned my nostrils and the bang was louder, so much louder than I expected. My ears rang for a long time. That's what I remember, but, but I don't remember being traumatized. You don't think that affected you? You didn't grow up on a farm. You you don't understand. On the farm, you're always so close, so very, very close to both life and death. I wasn't bothered by death any more than I was bothered by birth. And my dad, my dad loved animals. He wasn't even a hunter. He wasn't a gun nut. He wasn't a Rambo tough guy. In fact, he always talked about this horse named Goldie. It was his horse back when he was a kid. Goldie grew old and she eventually needed to be put down. So he called the vet. But after two lethal injections, Goldie just wouldn't die. The vet got frustrated and he took this rifle and he gave it to my dad and he said, it's your horse, you gotta kill her, put a bullet between her eyes. My dad reluctantly killed Goldie that day, out of mercy. But he hated guns after that and he resented that the vet ordered him to kill her. He said he'd never tell me to kill anything and he never did. I saw him save so many animals. I remember this one day. It was bad. It was, it was really, really terrible. My brother was mowing hay. And uh, when you mow hay, you use a field mower, not a lawnmower. A field mower has a sickle blade. So you have to imagine this giant electric hair trimmer like a barber uses or a beard trimmer. But instead of cutting a path of hair an inch or an inch and a half wide, this thing cuts a path of grass 10, 12 feet wide. It's the same engineering principle. The field mower is just on a much, much larger scale. That's, that's what a sickle plate is. If you see it in action, it looks like a laser beam or something is attached to the side of the tractor. And as the tractor passes, the hay just falls down backwards. Our dog, Tippy, was with him. The mower, it stirs up all kinds of pheasants and rabbits and other animals, and the dogs just love to chase everything that gets stirred up. And Tippy was our, our favorite dog. She was like a second mother to all of us kids. She was chasing this rabbit, and the rabbit ran away from the mower, but then it did a 180, and it turned, and it ran straight back toward the blade. But when it got back to the blade, it just jumped over the blade. Tippy was so focused on the rabbit, she didn't notice the blade, and she ran right into it. And the blade cut off her paws right below her ankles. My brother was hysterical. He jumped out of the tractor, and he picked her up, and he ran back with her to the farm place. And I'll always remember him carrying her down that dirt road under the shade of the walnut trees. His shirt was unbuttoned, and his chest was bloody. It was bloody all the way down to his knees, and Tippy was in his arms, and she was unconscious. And her bloody and mangled paws were just dangling by a few tendons, a few strands of flesh. That's all that held her paws onto her body. And he was crying and screaming for help. I mean, God, you talk about something that traumatized me. That traumatized me. 
I had no idea what happened. I didn't want to know what happened. I was just paralyzed. I thought for sure she was dead. But my dad, he, he jumped into action and he took Tippy out of my brother's arms and he put her in the pickup and they sped off to the vet. And the vet saved Tippy. It, it was incredible. It was a miracle, really. He reattached all of her paws. Well, her one front paw never worked again and she hopped around on three legs for the rest of her life, but she survived because of my dad. And I have no idea how much it cost to fix that dog, but my dad didn't care. He fixed her. And she lived for many years after that accident. Did she die? Did Tippy eventually die? My therapist asked. Yeah, she did. She, uh, she did. That was, that was a sad day, too. My sisters were riding their horses along a highway, and Tippy was running next to them between the horses and the road. She always had to be protecting us. And, um, yeah, out of nowhere, this car just came along, and it hit Tippy, and she flew over the hood of the car and bounced off of the windshield and came crashing down onto the pavement. It was probably the blow to her head that killed her. My sisters saw it all, and the car never stopped. They sprinted their horses home, and they got my dad, and he went back down to the road with his pickup, and he brought Tippy home in a box. I remember petting her in that box. She was so small, and her body was dead and lifeless. We couldn't bury her in the pet cemetery, not with all the other animals. Tippy was the queen. She was a queen. She couldn't be buried like a common pet. So my brother dug a, a special grave for her in a row of pine trees behind the house. It was a quiet place, especially at sunset. It, it was really, really quite a lovely place. And we buried her there. We piled rocks on top of her grave, and, and we put them in the shape of a heart. And we also stuck a cross on top of that grave. I don't know. For some reason, we believed that all of our pets were necessarily Christians. My therapist chuckled, scribbling on her notepad. Oh, the blood, my God, the blood, she said. I get nauseous just listening to you. She shook her head. Blood? I, I haven't even told you a bloody story yet. Ah, oh, really? I, I just get so queasy when I have to think about blood. I do, but go ahead, go ahead. I can take it, I can take it. So I continued... Yeah, I'll never forget this one day when my dad and I went to the butcher shop. We took this beautiful black Angus steer to be butchered so that we could eat it. I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old. I don't remember a lot, but I remember the butcher was wearing white overalls and rubber gloves and boots. His kill room was huge. It was all white with a red floor, and the floor sloped to the center where there was a big metal grate that covered a drain. The ceiling was really, really high, like, like probably 20 feet high. There were stainless steel carts and cabinets, knives and saws, and so many other things that I had never seen before. And there was a big cable that hung from a pulley in the ceiling, and on the end of the cable was a hook. I was transfixed. I was really fascinated by everything in the room. It looked like something out of a horror movie. It all seemed sterile, but obviously so, so deadly. Bang! I, I was startled. I turned. Uh, the steer dropped to his knees. Air rushed from his lungs as he fell. There was a guttural bellow as his head hit the floor, and, and then his legs buckled, and his body rolled to the ground. Blood trickled from his nose and mouth. Quickly, the butcher grabbed the hook that was hanging from the ceiling, and he forced it through the steer's septum. He pushed a green button on the wall, and an electrical winch lifted the steer until he was dangling. His entire body was dangling from the ceiling, directly above the metal grate. And then he lowered the steer until his neck was at eye level. 
The butcher took this incredibly long, sharp knife and he began to swipe, 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 swipe at the calf's neck. He, he wasn't reckless at all. He was incredibly precise. He swiped around and around the calf's neck until this, this thin white line appeared just beneath the steer's thick black coat. That line grew wider and wider until it turned red. And then there was this waterfall of blood that came gushing from the steer's neck. The blood ran like a river down his body and into the metal grate. And, and then a few seconds later, there was this pop. I don't know. The butcher sliced through something, a vertebrae or something. And the body separated from the head and it came crashing to the floor with this heavy squishing sound. And the pool of blood widened as the carcass fell over the drain. I remember the blood beneath the body was was frothy and foamy, and I, and I didn't understand why it was that way. It was just frothy, and I didn't expect it to be like that. I wasn't shocked. I was, I was still. I was in a trance. The whole thing happened so quickly. This animal was alive a few minutes, a few seconds ago, and here his head was dangling from a hook. His lifeless eyes were glazed over and staring back at me, separated from his body. I would have called it surreal, but I didn't know what surreal meant at that age. I looked at the blood on the floor and then back at the head dangling from the ceiling. And before I knew it, the butcher had grabbed the head and pulled it close to his body. He smiled and he said to me, Hey kiddo, you can't butcher a steer without getting a little bloody. And then he pushed the steer's head, swinging it like a giant pendulum. It swung over me and for whatever reason I remained lost in that moment, paralyzed. I heard the calf's severed head as it swooshed over me, and I looked up and was eclipsed by this, this mass of severed tendons and cartilage and ligaments and muscle tissue. Blood rained down upon me, and the head traveled back to the butcher, and he caught it and laughed. And then I laughed, and my dad laughed. My therapist raised her eyebrows and cocked her head. Now, you're going to tell me that that didn't traumatize you. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I, I thought it was kind of cool. It felt like some kind of initiation rite into a fraternity or brotherhood or whatever. Hell, that steer was turned into a hundred packages of meat wrapped in white paper and stacked in our freezer. I had zero problems eating that calf. I had no remorse. My therapist looked up at me. So you don't remember being bothered by any of this? You were never bothered? You just detached from all of this? Amazing, she said, shaking her head. Well, there's one story that kind of bothers me a little bit. Okay, tell me, tell me that story. I was in this dark place, this pitch black place. But in the stillness, I felt something apart from me, and I heard a distinct, separate sound. I knew what it was. It was rats. There, there were rats in the bottom of the grain bin. They were in every corner. Two or three were in every corner. And then my dad engaged the grinder below. I, I didn't have a problem with rats. I'd been around rats my whole life. I'd killed hundreds, if not thousands, of rats without a second thought. And I knew I was going to kill these rats, too. I drove my scoop under one of the rats, and I used it like a snowplow. The rat was totally unaware that the grain beneath him was moving. And when he was over the hole, I pulled my shovel out, and the grain began to flow through the trap door in the floor. It was like the rat was sinking into quicksand, and by the time he realized what was happening, it was too late. He could try to run, but the gravitational pull of the grain was too strong. He couldn't outrun gravity. He struggled at first, but eventually he surrendered. Eventually he was consumed by the grain. First his body, then his ears, then his head, and finally his whiskers twitch, twitch, twitching as he disappeared below. 
into the grinder, pulverized into hog feed. The grinder roared and chewed up everything that fell from the ceiling and I repeated the snowplow routine over and over until eventually there were only a couple of rats left. I think it was the second to the last rat. I don't think it was the very last rat, but I, but I pushed him over to the trapdoor and he began his irreversible descent into the grinder. Like all the others, he struggled at first, but, but resigned eventually. Eventually, the quicksand of grain engulfed him and he disappeared below the surface with his whiskers. Twitch, twitch, twitching. And I sat there, breathing, motionless, silent, watching him disappear into death. And then, bang! The surface of the grain exploded and that rat burst like a missile, heading straight for my foot. I didn't realize it, but the lace of my boot was untied and the laces were really, really long. Like the grain and the rats and everything else in the bin, my laces were sucked into the gravity flow. And that rat was using my lace as a lifeline. Hand over fist, he was propelling himself out of the grain, away from his death and toward me. In a split second, his claws were on my boot. A split second after that, and his claws dug into the skin of my calf. Oh my fucking God, I thought. He, he's coming up my leg. He's coming up the inside of my pant leg. God damn it, he's going to go for my balls. He's going to castrate me. I'll be a bloody mess. I, I was only 15. I hadn't even had a chance to have sex yet. How would I explain this to a girl, to anyone? I'd never be a father. What the hell am I going to do? I, I couldn't run. I couldn't strip off my clothes. I was wearing a coverall. He'd be at my balls before I got the damn thing unzipped. There was, there was only one thing I could do. I thrust both of my hands into my thigh, and I wrapped my hands as tightly as I could around my leg. And luckily, luckily, I hit my mark. I hit his neck. And I squeezed and I squeezed the son of a bitch against my thigh. And he kicked and he kicked and he dug his claws into my leg and scratched and scratched. And I squeezed and squeezed and he kicked and I squeezed until he stopped scratching. And then I squeezed a long time after that. I had to make damn sure that bastard was dead and I squeezed until I let go. Until his body was still and rested motionless against my thigh against the scratches he left on my leg. I stood and I shook my leg. His limp, lifeless body slowly slid down my thigh and around my knee and fell out the bottom of my pants. Holy fuck. Holy hell, I thought. His lifeless eyes stared up at me in the darkness. You, you fucking bastard. I beat you, goddammit. I beat you. You're fucking dead. My hand was cramped and my heart was pounding, ready to leap from my chest. With my boot, I slid his carcass to the trap door and kicked him over the edge, into the grinder. My therapist looked up at me again. Why do you think that story bothers you? Well, I said, whenever I think about strangling that rat, I, I just wonder if I'm some kind of psycho. I mean, didn't Jeffrey Dahmer have stories like this? Didn't he start this way? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine my kids experiencing any of this. I, I didn't have a normal childhood. I, I don't know what a normal childhood is, but, but I know I didn't have one. I feel like these stories strip away my all-American facade. They leave me naked and bare. They corrupt the memories of my idyllic youth. They expose me and shame me. I don't want them to be part of me. But the truth is, they are part of me. The All-American is the dogged father combining corn. The All-American is the unappreciated mother cooking casseroles late at night. The All-American is the boy carrying his dog down a dirt road shaded by walnut trees. The All-American is two girls sprinting their horses along a rural highway. 
I mean, these are the all-American images that are so often presented to us, the Norman Rockwell ideal of America. You can't deny that, and, and, and I live that. But, but the all-American is also the shotgun blast that leaves our ears ringing and our nostrils burning. The all-American is the tendons and the muscles and the tissues of bodies being ripped apart. The all-American is long, sharp knives swipe, swipe, swiping through waterfalls of frothy blood. The all-American is strangulation and suffocation, leaving nothing but lifeless eyes staring back at us in dark, dusty places. I mean, the truth is the truth. If you love the all-American, you can't look away from its violence. You can't pick and choose. You can't just wish for the corruption to disappear. If we ignore that truth, the truth of who we are may very well destroy us. But some say fear is the beginning of wisdom. So let us be wise in our fear. Let us see ourselves for who we truly are. And let us fight the evil within ourselves. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole the old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the air And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Johnny Cash behind me now, and that was Ernest Anfin we just heard. Now, Ernest first pitched just a tiny bit of that story for our Halloween episode last year, just the part about strangling the rat. But I felt there was more to unpack from it. So we went back and forth for quite a while. And Michelle Walson also stepped in to give notes at one point, too. I've shared a little bit in some of the Patreon check-ins about just how aggressive my struggles with depression have become in the past year. Uh, I finally, just this weekend, started a new antidepressant, but I am still deep in the thick of it. And I know a lot of you struggle 
with depression and anxiety too. You write into me all the time to say that. And I know from experience, there are sometimes things we can point to, things we can clearly identify as obvious reasons for feeling hopelessness or helplessness. But there's often also these big blurry areas of just confusion as well. You know, so often the experience of saying to yourself, why, why can't I get rid of feeling so bad? You know, how can I possibly reframe things? How can I possibly teach myself to stop thinking and feeling the way I think and feel? And I think that for so many of us Americans, the process of watching half a million of us die in the past 12 months, so many of those deaths, so preventable, so unnecessary, and the process of watching millions of our neighbors get behind a, a racist, fascist movement, and the process of, of seeing so many people around us struggling to pay the rent and put food on the table. All of that has led for a lot of us to an overall feeling of, oh, wait, wait, this, this is my country? This is the family? that I come from, this is the, the sea I swim in that feeds me and runs through my system, who am I supposed to be after witnessing all of this? Where do I even want to be going now? And so for my own part, in, in the back and forth of getting Ernest to revise that piece, again and again, so that it went from four minutes to 22 minutes or whatever. I think what was really going on is that I have come to realize that storytelling is really not quite as much about providing answers as we'd usually like to think it is. I think it's more about asking questions. It's less about saying, Here's my life experience, and voila! Here's the nifty, foolproof lesson I learned from it. And it's more about saying, here's my life experience, and what the fuck? You know, I, I, I knew that people would be really upset. Some people would be really upset about things that happened to animals in that story. But I also felt that that story was important because it challenges us to ask ourselves, who are we really? What kind of darkness lies inside us? And what should we do about it? It's a lot to chew on, but uh, I'm very thankful to Ernest for digging into it the way he did. So much of what this podcast is all about is that we never give up. You know, we return to this constant reminder that we have resources. We have one another. I have you, 
out there listening. You have me here sending these stories out to you. When I know I've been especially hit hard by, by something, you know, a particular tragedy or a setback, I usually try to soon after do something creative or constructive that helps me somehow continue seeing possibility, continue seeing potential upsides in life. And storytelling is just an obvious way to do that. So Ernest knew he had this place, this podcast, where he could keep coming back, keep digging into these memories, and keep striving to learn from them. And that learning will continue as he sees people's reactions to the story, as he continues, you know, to work with his insights he's having in therapy. Every time we have a storyteller do one of these Patreon check-ins with me, they want to talk about things they've learned since they told this or that story on the show. So I, I sometimes get so upset about my, my brain chemistry, my ADHD, and my depression. You know, cursing the universe for having given me this cross to bear. But there's always something to be grateful for when you look at things from a different angle. Like a lot of my stories about how kinky I am are framed as celebrations of how I try to lean into my weirdness. I try to own my freakiness. But I think you can tell. <laughs> There's always this tug of war going on in those stories because at the age of 50, I still feel so much shame and low self-esteem and neuroses around all of that. You know, for someone who is as sexually experienced as I am, I still have so many sexual hangups as much as I curse the gods for my ADHD and depression, I think they've also taught me something invaluable. They've taught me pain and suffering and darkness. And that has taught me empathy. That has taught me to have compassion for other people's struggles. That is why I keep coming back to make sure this show continues to be made. We've all got each other. And as long as we keep sharing, we'll keep growing. I, I always think of this quote from one of the founders of the field of psychology, Carl Jung. He said, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own soul. 
But one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light. One becomes enlightened by making the darkness conscious. So, <laughs> onward we go. Okay. <laughs> Folks, we are thrilled and so grateful, we're so grateful, that businesses, both large and small, are starting to hire us again for storytelling for business workshops at thestorystudio.org. Because having your staff come together and learn together how to communicate more emotionally, more mindfully, more motivationally, if that's even a word, <laughs> with one another while learning about one another at the same time, it's so beneficial. And we've worked with businesses like Citibank and Google and Pfizer and American Express. So visit us at thestorystudio.org. Also, take a good look at the Risk website sometimes. We're at risk-show.com. You'll find tables of contents for the episodes, which include where to find the storytellers and the musicians for every episode, how to pitch us stories, how to buy our merch, and much more at risk-show.com. And if you'd like to hire me for storytelling training one-on-one, -on -one, I'm at kevinallison.com. Right now I'm working with someone who is working on podcast content of his own, someone else who's working on a memoir, someone else who's working on preparing for a job interview. I love these one-on-one -on -one sessions and it's all at kevinallison.com. Also to talk with other fans about the stories you hear on the show, Join the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or look for our subreddit, Risk Podcast. And you can follow our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Thank <laughs> you.